Pairings, a podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing? I'm good. I am very excited to talk about Beloved with you today. I am really, really excited to get some of your teacher perspective and just to talk about this book with another reader because there's so much to talk about. Yeah, this is just a book that begs to be discussed, I think. And this was the first year in five years, I think, that I didn't have the chance to teach it. So kind of like how you felt on our Romeo and Juliet episode, <laughs> I'm feeling that way about this. It's a it's a good opportunity to get to read it again and talk about it, even though I didn't get to teach it. Oh, I love that. I think we'll just start by saying how we're going to frame this episode because it'll be a little bit different. We know that we always say we're not here to convince everyone to read the classics, but <laughs> <laughs> in this case, we do really hope to encourage everyone to pick up this incredible book. So we'll be careful to avoid major spoilers and discussion of major plot points in this episode. Some things that might sound spoilery aren't, like it's well-known jacket copy summary, but we'll avoid giving too many spoilers and instead we're going to provide some readerly advice, some resources, and we're going to refer you to the experts to enhance your reading experience. And then of course we're going to gush about the brilliance of Toni Morrison and perhaps even crown Beloved as the great American novel. Yes, I am so excited to share some teachery insights, but mostly just to gush and celebrate this book and this author who, as mentioned, we're not the experts on her, but we adore her and are just grateful to have the opportunity to have gotten to read this book and talk about it here. Yes, I I feel really ashamed to admit this, but I had only ever read Toni Morrison's nonfiction, her essays and speeches, listened to some of her interviews, but this was the first of her novels that I have ever read. I don't think you need to be ashamed about that. I I mean, I think there are a lot of people that still haven't picked up Toni Morrison. I am ashamed just because I feel like I should have encountered her work in my schooling. I feel like it's been sitting on my shelf for too long. Um, and I kept putting it off. So that's where the shame comes from. <laughs> yeah, I can completely understand that. And maybe our schools should feel ashamed that they didn't <laughs> teach us Morrison. I actually picked up Beloved for the first time in grad school and kind of out of embarrassment that I hadn't read her novels. And people around me were talking about her work, of course. And I hadn't read her in high school. I didn't, she didn't show up in any of my college curriculum. So yeah, I, I feel very similarly in my first reading of her. And uh, you've shared, just with me, you've shared some of your teaching experience with 
beloved. So I'm wondering if you could share a little bit more about that. Yeah. So when I first started teaching at the school I'm currently at, I, my first year, um, I taught AP language, which is also an American literature class at my school. And it was another teacher and I who kind of took over the curriculum at the same time and split the sections of it. And when we inherited the curriculum, the only book by a woman that was in the course was My Antonia by Willa Cather, which for anyone who doesn't know is told from a male perspective. (laughs) (laughs) And the only book by an author of color on the book list was Frederick Douglass, which is a fantastic book, but should certainly not be the only work of African-American literature that is in an American lit course. So he and I taught the class as it was the first year. And then the next year we were like, we've got to do something about this. And we brought in Beloved and oh my gosh, do we love teaching this book. Like, it is so rewarding. To me, it has everything in a teachable novel that I want there to be in every book I teach. It's it's a masterpiece. It's linguistically beautiful. There's so much to talk about with the language and symbolism. There's so much to talk about with the history, both the actual history and literary history and where it fits into the American narrative. And beyond that, it really makes students feel deeply and viscerally. And that is important. And and I also think that this is a book that people can really benefit from being in a class um, when they read it. And I'm, I'm not saying that I teach it perfectly by any means, but just having space and time to learn with a community and discuss and having a a comfortable place to ask questions, I think is really good to have with this book. And so, you know, I, I think those are the kinds of books we should be teaching in school are the ones where students recognize their power. And my students really do. I mean, just even in the last week, talking to some of my seniors who read this book as juniors last year, they always say, just make sure you never take Beloved out of the curriculum. They really love and appreciate it. And I've, I've had students tell me how much it's changed their mind about the world. I've had students tell me it's the first book they've ever connected with. I had A student recently told me that when a college admissions officer asked her what book she'd bring to a desert island, she said Beloved because she knew she could get something different out of reading it each time. It just makes me so proud to see my students handle this book with grace and love and empathy and and see Morrison's genius. That makes my heart so happy. I just love that so much. And it is a more contemporary classic. So it's it won the Pulitzer in 1988. And so when we talk about sort of more contemporary books being included in the curriculum, I think that this is an amazing one to pull that, I mean, I certainly count it as a classic, but it is a more recent classic for sure. 
But before we launch into our discussion, we just wanted to start with a quote from Toni Morrison that you pulled. Would you like to share that with us? Sure. I I love this quote, and I, I start my unit of Beloved with this as well. And she said, I'm writing for Black people in the same way that Tolstoy was not writing for me, a 14-year-old colored girl from Lorain, Ohio. I don't have to apologize or consider myself limited because I don't write about white people, which is not absolutely true. There are lots of white people in my books. The point is not having the white critic sit on your shoulder and approve it. I really enjoy starting with that perspective and knowing that uh, we can enjoy books that are not meant for us. This book was not meant for me as a white reader, but I can still get a lot out of it. Yes, absolutely. I I think it's really important when I approach this book, not just this book, but, but many books, as a reader and as a teacher, that I consider this and, and decenter myself. I also think it's really important for white readers to seek out books that weren't written for them because so many books were written for us. Yeah, it's so true. And particularly when we're talking about classics, which is tends to be a very heavily white loaded term. And when we talk about expanding the canon, we're talking about expanding people's conception of language and culture. So I think this is just such a great book to do that with. I agree. So we're going to discuss some ways to really get the most out of your reading experience with Beloved and just sort of what to pay attention to while reading. This is a little bit of a mix of teacherly advice slash just what we found helpful um, (laughs) as readers ourselves. And I really like this first question that you have shared in our document here. What if I read this symbolically? Keeping symbolism in the back of your mind while reading this novel, rather than thinking of plot and character in very traditional ways, thinking about what the characters might represent thematically and symbolically over time and history. I mean, it is expansive. Each character holds a world within themselves. And... When a scene doesn't make sense to a linear mindset, we're so used to linear plots. This is not a linear plotted novel. No. (laughs) Um, And when something makes sense, going back to it and thinking, where might the symbolism be here is a great way to help frame it. And just to get your mind wrapped around the idea that A, you're not going to get everything, Yes. Um, And B, it's not straightforward, and that is okay and good and challenging in a great way. Yes. Oh, I agree with everything you said, and there's just so much in that. Yes, I think it's so important to know that you won't get everything from this book. I've read it multiple times. There are passages I read, and I'm like, no. What? (laughs) What? No clue. And I'll, I'll read some of those because some of them are the most beautiful passages too. But I, I think sitting in the ambiguity is really important and trying to be comfortable with that, both in terms of, like you said, how the characters and various things throughout the text can just symbolize 
multitudes of ideas that it's not this direct one-to-one correlation like whenever this character shows up you know it means x that's not the type of symbolism we're talking about here i also think it's really brilliant how morrison seems to be tugging you back and forth between reading it symbolically and reading it as plot that can make the book challenging but I think it also makes it fun and she gives the reader a lot of agency to make meaning of her text which is I think of that as a gift like this genius has given me not me specifically but given us as readers this room to interpret and it's it's really interesting to read that way yeah and I think as we talk about reading symbolically and looking for the deeper meaning it's it's tempting to stay very intellectual with this book but Morrison doesn't allow for that um there are really visceral physical passages in here and I think that the reader is meant to have a very physical visceral reaction to a lot of scenes and that is intentional but like you said it is this tug of war between that physical reaction and things feeling so real and then it's it's all so unreal and supernatural at the same time. Let's just give like a little bit of synopsis before we get into more of dissecting some of this symbolic reading. You've read this one multiple times. I feel like you should probably share <laughs> how you would summarize this book. All right. So the book primarily follows Setha, who is a woman who was born into slavery but has escaped. This is post-Civil War, so now slavery has been abolished, but the lingering effects of it are still very prevalent. This book takes place in Ohio. Setha lives with her daughter, Denver. We know that the beginning of the book that she has two older sons who have left home. And she also had another daughter who has died. And we know that Setha and Denver live in a house that is haunted by a spirit. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that it's likely the spirit of Setha's dead daughter. And at the beginning of the book... A man from Setha's past returns, Paul D., and he comes into the house and kind of scares off this spirit. And then a young woman appears, and she calls herself Beloved, and Setha and Denver are very taken with her. They invite her into her home, into their home, and the rest of the book follows Primarily those three characters, Setha, Denver, and Beloved, this kind of triangle or trinity and the way they interact with each other. And yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the main thread. But then Morrison sort of braids all of these stories from each character's past. Some of the stories get brought up again and again and are told in a different way. And so there's this really interesting... um, they're not quite flashbacks. It doesn't feel just like a flashback. 
their rememories. Yes. Um, to use her word. And so that's all braided together in this really, I mean, this is unlike anything I've ever read structurally. Yeah, I mean, I think we talked about our love for flashbacks and piecing together a character's story when we talked about the remains of the day. But that is so, so much more traditional in terms of the way it uses flashbacks. And this is almost stream of consciousness at times. It, it, I don't have a word for the way she brings up those memories, but I can say that it just feels very real and how memories work. Like you're just going about your day and something triggers a, a memory and you're there. And she brings up the same memories multiple times, but adds different details or focuses on different things. And that just feels very much to me how, how memories really work. Yeah, absolutely. It is very, very realistic in that way. So just your facial expression when you started to talk about Beloved, because of course, <laughs> that is the title of the novel. And I want to say like, that's the character that really makes you question things and there isn't a protagonist but beloved spurs the story forward and really pushes pushes all of the other characters in different ways and when we talk about uh, reading symbolically beloved is the biggest uh, biggest thing to look at I think yes absolutely we want to know who she is she shows up she shows up and she's fresh looking. She her skin is un, almost entirely unblemished and she has on new clothes and she acts like an infant. She needs constant naps and so we we want to know who she is, but I I think another question to ask is is what is she? And she holds a lot. There's not an easy answer here. And at different moments, I think she represents different ideas or historical realities or characters' traumas. And she's both a very complex character and hardly a character. It's fascinating what she does with her. Yeah. And I think that I say we, and by that I guess I mean American readers who are like, (laughs) you know, used to maybe American schools teaching us that there is a symbol in this book and this is what it means throughout the entire book. That's not how this book functions. The different symbols and images, including Beloved, but also others, change and morph throughout the book. Sort of the way that history morphs and changes different ideas and things to make them look different but they remain the same in new forms throughout history so it's it's really complicated it's hard to explain I think we should move on (laughs) yeah I think so too I I think it's it's hard to explain and should just be experienced and enjoyed and wrestled with yes definitely and, and speaking of that, I, I think that actually lends itself really well to our, our next point, which is letting yourself, as you're reading this book, stop and reread passages. So there are passages in this book that will 
completely take your breath away. And I've read this book, I, I think, about five times now. I'll just say there are lots of books you can teach and not read every year. This is not one of them. <laughs> so often as I'm reading, the, the same passages every time will hit me emotionally or viscerally. And I find that to be really amazing because often once you've kind of seen a passage, you've worked through it, it doesn't hit you the same way on a second reading. In this book, there are a lot of passages that do that for me. And then at the same time, there will be new passages that leap off the page after multiple readings. And I think it's important to sit with those passages. If something takes your breath away, reread it. Don't force yourself to just keep reading for the sake of plot. Really live in those moments and and kind of consider why they're hitting you. I'm just nodding along in agreement. Being okay with taking this book slow is is definitely good advice. I, I think we'll probably be sharing a lot of passages as we go, just because we both really appreciate Morrison's language. And one that I, I want to read that really stood out to me this reading, this is a scene where Setha and Denver and Beloved are ice skating. Oh, yes, this one. I have no clue what this passage means. I don't know why they're ice skating. I I try to read it literally. I try to read it symbolically. I have not unlocked this scene. I am okay with that because it is stunning. I'll just read a short paragraph from it. Each seemed to be helping the other two stay upright, yet every tumble doubled their delight. The live oak and softening pine on the banks enclosed them and absorbed their laughter while they fought gravity for each other's hands. Their skirts flew like wings, and their skin turned pewter in the cold and dying light. Nobody saw them falling. It's just gorgeous. Like, I, I have nothing else to say about it except when I get to that passage, I want to read that little paragraph again and again because it's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is there are certain phrases. Well, we've already said some of the memories come up again and again in the book, but there are also certain phrases that get repeated over and over. So it almost feels like you are rereading without going back and rereading. And it's a little trippy sometimes. But of course, taking note of what gets repeated and trying to find out why and then sort of going back and reading again. Um, one of the phrases that stood out to me in this way was that Setha keeps referring to Beloved as she is my best thing. Mm. Yeah. Over and over again. And I, I mean, I can make some guesses, but I, I could grapple with just that sentence for days. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. And looking for those repetitions, whether it's phrases or what English teachers sometimes refer to as leitmotifs, which are basically recurring images, sounds, or objects that show up throughout a text. Those repetitions can draw readers' attention to specific passages and ideas and connect things across 
a book. They feel important. And when I think when something feels important, when it's repeated, it feels important. As a reader, trust your trust your gut to pay attention to those moments. So some of the, the leitmotifs in Beloved are certain phrases like the one you mentioned, Chelsea, colors like red, trees are very important, water. Those are things that, like the characters who we can read symbolically, they don't necessarily equal one idea, but they draw our, they make you notice. They ask for your attention. So something specific um, to our experience, and particularly I think this is something that you really emphasize with your students. So this is from us as white readers to the white listeners out there. Toni Morrison includes a depiction of benevolent slave owners, which is an oxymoron. There's no such thing. But it, it could be tempting to think of the Garners as, quote, benevolent slave owners because they comparatively treat their slaves well. This is, like I said, that's not a thing. There is no such thing as a good slave owner. And... I, I just think that that choice is so intentional on the part of Morrison. And I unfortunately really think that the way that slavery is taught, um, the way that the history of slavery is taught in American schools, not every single one, but like broadly a lot of them, unfortunately gets gently handed to people. The horrors are not exposed. It is a watered down version of what really happened. And so the danger in that is then someone could read a book like this and then sort of see those signs of the garners and say, oh, well, they, you know, sweet home, the plantation wasn't so bad until the next owner took over. Um, it's, It's just a dangerous trap that we don't want to fall into as white readers. Yes, and it's a very cleverly laid trap. <laughs> I mean, the, the plantation is named Sweet Home. There's so much in that. And one thing that I try to point to with my students is, one is the Garner's last name. To Garner means to collect. And one of the things that the book really viscerally and intellectually depicts is how deeply dehumanizing slavery is and was and the garners are part of that they they garner they collect people and we can see that in particular in the fact that mr garner names all of his enslaved men paul and then just adds a letter at the end of their name so there's paul a paul b and that tells you a lot about the Garners and the way they think of their enslaved people. I'll refer frequently to Tracy Thomas's podcast, The Stacks. Episode 60 is on Beloved, and she and her guest Damaris Hill talk about this element of the story as well, and I highly recommend listening to to their discussion. It's phenomenal in many ways. I, I loved listening to it. And the way they talk about this benevolent slave ownership is really interesting and illuminating as well. 
Yeah, I really got a lot out of their conversation. Highly recommend that episode, absolutely. Another piece of advice, this is a little more touchy-feely, but just as important, I think, is knowing yourself as a reader and your own sense of empathy and sensitivities. As, as mentioned, this book is mature. There's a lot of trauma in it. And I want, I, I, I have no problem saying I want every reader to read this book. But you do have to, to know your own sensibilities. And I prefer my students not to read spoilers for this book. I think that the way the narrative unfolds is important and we, we need to really know Setha before we fully understand her history and we get to the climax of the book. I think Morrison reveals things when she thinks they should be revealed and, and I'm not going to, to mess with that. However, I always tell my students, know yourselves, pay attention to how you're feeling, and if they want to know what's coming next, I ask them to approach me and we'll talk about it together before they encounter it on the page. Sometimes I save some of the harder scenes to read in class so we can process together. It, it depends year by year on what the dynamics are like, but I think that's important. Like If you know you need some warning going into a book that deals with traumatic events, do that. If you can let it unfold, do that. It's a book that you have to pay attention to your your own feelings and how you'll get the most out of the book. Yeah. This is not to discourage anyone from reading it at all. Oh, no. I think the Stacks podcast that we mentioned, and we'll link to that episode in show notes again. Don't worry about that. But um, that one is spoiler filled. And I think that if you are the type of reader who wants to have some trigger warnings and know more plot points before getting into this book, which is completely valid, that would be a good episode to listen to. I don't love the Sparknotes summary of the book. I feel like it's, yeah, it just really falls short, but it does highlight some main plot points and some things that are going to happen that could come up. But I would say for sensitive readers or people who are hesitant Um, to pick this one up because of the trauma. In an interview that I listened to, it was the BBC World Books program, and it was an interview with Toni Morrison. And she was asked about the writing experience and how she could sit down and write this book, and was it painful for her? And she said that some parts were absolutely paralyzing to write. She would write a scene and then she had to go take a walk or have a break from it to breathe easy again. But that her job in writing this story was easy compared to the people who lived it, who were enslaved and lived through traumas that were equal or worse than what's mentioned in the book. And I think that that's really important for readers to keep in the back of their minds when approaching this before dismissing it as too hard and difficult, content-wise or writing-wise. Lean into that discomfort and trust that you are going to get something out of the reading experience, even if it causes some discomfort, even if you don't get every single page, even if some scenes make you sick to your stomach because they should. Yes. But you did not have to live through this. And as a white 
person, I walk around in a world where I, I don't live through the trauma of racism. And so I certainly have no excuse to not pick up a book and experience empathy and live in that space in my reading life for a while. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And I love that quote from that interview. That's really powerful. And yeah, I, I feel similarly as a as a reader, I it is a sheer privilege that I get to set this book down and think about other things and go on with my normal day. I, I think maybe this is a good time to talk just a little bit about the very last two pages. This isn't a spoiler, <laughs> I promise. But Morrison quite brilliantly addresses these questions, I think, in the book itself. And over the course of the last two pages, which are quite beautiful and very confusing, admittedly, she says three times with slight variation, this is not a story to pass on. Or this is not a story to pass on. And where you put the emphasis changes the meaning. It adds to the ambiguity. Is she saying that this isn't a story to keep telling, to pass on? Or is she saying this isn't a story you get to excuse yourself from, to pass on? And it's just so freaking brilliant. And I just... I. I think she's a genius. And I think you can tell she's a genius from that one sentence. Yeah, it's so true. (laughs) And uh, in that BBC interview that I mentioned, she was asked about the ambiguous ending and that really open-ended last couple of pages. And um, she mentioned that she wanted to emulate the call and response tradition in African-American storytelling and culture where that open-endedness is distinctly intentional for the listener or the reader to interpret and add on their own impression. And I, I love that. And she also just said specifically that she loves books that hold different discoveries with each reading and... Goodness, did she masterfully <laughs> accomplish that. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I love I love that. So we will absolutely put links in show notes for some of the resources that we mentioned. And then you can look for more in our weekly newsletter that we publish on Substack. You can subscribe to that through the link in our Instagram bio. And we'll also put a subscription link in the show notes for that. We will share those interviews and podcasts and other resources that we think can help enhance the reading experience. I hope some people decide to pick this one up and use as many resources as as you can while reading. I think it's also just helpful to do this as a buddy read. Read with someone you like, and then you can talk about it with them. Also, Toni Morrison narrates the audiobook version that's available on Libro FM. And I hadn't listened to it before, but I listened to a little bit of it this time and it gave me chills. So I think it might be hard to listen to the whole thing, but... But having the book in front of you with the audio... Exactly. And mixing it together would be good. That's what I would do for sure. Mm -hmm. So before we get into our pairings, do you want to just do some 
Toni Morrison love here and talk about why we love this book and, and maybe even <laughs> why we think this might be the great American novel. Yeah, let's just gush about it a little bit more. Okay. I just feel like this book holds so much. It holds so much in terms of history and culture and literary tradition and genius, pure genius, that I, I totally understand your student who said, I, this is the book I would want to take because I could read it, you know, every day and discover something new and get something new out of it. I agree. Every time I read it, I get something new. And I, this is pretty deep and nerdy, but I'm going to share it anyways. I I really (laughs) like how in American literature, I teach American literature, so I think about this a lot. Americanness is often defined or depicted in literature as this yearning for an idealized past. That, like, what it means to be an American is to want a better future for yourself, but also to yearn for this simpler, ideal past. There's a lot I could say about that that I won't. But I think Morrison really, she does that in this book, and she pushes back against that idea in this book. She depicts nostalgia, and she shows us the dangers of being overly nostalgic and she thinks about the past in a different way than some of the other books that are considered the great American novel like The Great Gatsby or Grapes of Wrath or something and just so we can get another Morrison passage in I'm going to read her first description of Sweet Home from the book and I think this passage really beautifully and succinctly starts that work of wrestling with nostalgia in the past. And she says, And suddenly there was Sweet Home, rolling, rolling, rolling out before her eyes. And although there was not a leaf on that farm that did not make her want to scream, it rolled itself out before her in shameless beauty. It never looked as terrible as it was, and it made her wonder if hell was a pretty place too. Fire and brimstone all right, but hidden in lacy groves. Boys hanging from the most beautiful sycamores in the world. It shamed her, remembering the wonderful soffing trees rather than the boys. Try as she might to make it otherwise, the sycamores beat out the children every time, and she could not forgive her memory for that. It's just (laughs) so... Wow. Note for the audio, we just <laughs> we just physically swooned. <laughs> yeah. Because of her genius and the I mean that language. So powerful. It's powerful and it's beautiful and horrific all at once and mm-hmm. it's it's just mesmerizing. Something that I so loved about reading this book and getting more invested in Toni Morrison's fiction is that I feel like I have a better understanding of some contemporary African-American books and novels by authors who were greatly influenced by Morrison. And that's not to say that I get 
again, get everything because my perspective is limited, but I do have a greater appreciation for the literary tradition that she is both celebrating and setting forth. And I just feel like a lot of dots were connected for me. And I love, I love when books are connected. That's, that's the point of this podcast. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I totally agree. I think there are some books that I wouldn't have liked or appreciated had I not read Beloved before them. And then there are books that after reading Beloved, I was like, it, it opened my eyes in some ways. And yeah, I I think I, I will also say that personally, this book is very important to me. I, because this book wasn't written for me. And as a white woman, I know I have a lot of my own learning and unlearning to continue to do. And this was the book that led me to start that journey. And I'm kind of embarrassed to say that because as I mentioned, I didn't read this book until grad school. And so that shows you kind of how late to the game I was in trying to think about these things. But this book showed me the gaps in my own perspective and, and my knowledge. And another shout out to Tracy for for that language. She really helped me in thinking about my own reading life and my own teaching to rather than phrase it as this book taught me something because this book wasn't intended to teach me mm-hmm. something, that this book showed me what I didn't know. Hmm. I love that. I, it's so smart and so right and this book showed me what I don't know and it made me want to learn more and for me that is the definitive example of the power of fiction like this this novel could show me something that I I don't know that for me personally a history book could have but it opened the door for me to seek out that history and to seek out more novels and other works that that are about these same ideas. Hmm. Well, I think that is the perfect transition for us to get into our pairings. Let's do it. All right, Chelsea. So full disclosure, when we were working on this episode, I think we had about 12 books between us <laughs> that we talked about pairing with Beloved. And whittling it down to three each was a challenge, but we will certainly be saving all of those other books that are reaching back to Beloved and sharing them on other episodes. Yeah, definitely. I am particularly excited for you to talk about your first pairing because this is one that I've had on my shelf for a couple of months, and I have been excited to pick it up, but I am glad that I read Beloved first, I think. Yeah, I. this is one that I truly think I might not have enjoyed nearly as much had I not read Beloved first. It was so connected to it. And every time I would hear another reader offer a critique of this, I just want to be like, oh, but read Beloved. And then you'll see why <laughs> he did that. <laughs> so my first pick is The Water Dancer by ta Coates. The book follows Hiram Walker, who was a young man, he was born into slavery as the son of an enslaved woman and the white plantation owner. 
And when Hiram is young, his mother is sold away. And when his mother is sold away, he also loses all of his memories of her. He has this power, it's, there's some magical realism here, just like in Beloved, called conduction. And what conduction is remains a mystery for about half of the novel. You just have to sit with that mystery. But conduction has, has a lot to do both with his mother and who she was, but also the loss of his mother and with Hiram's relationship to memory. So much of this book felt intentionally connected to Beloved. The themes of memory and motherhood, the power of memory, almost the magic of memory. But even small things like the leitmotif of water that Coates uses over and over and the way he uses language. The name of the plantation in The Water Dancer is Lockless, which has an ironic ring to it, just like Sweet Home. And I know from from being on Goodreads and Bookstagram and seeing some reviews that a lot of readers found this book to be slow at the start. I didn't have any issue with that at all. I think it was essential for Coates to lay the foundation and the stakes and to really do this world building, for lack of a better word. And the the beginning is what most clearly connected with Beloved for me. And so I I relished those those sections of the book. But I guess do know that going in that I think the book's about 400 pages long. I'd say the first quarter is slower paced and then and then it picks up. And I, I won't say anything spoilery, but another thing I really love about this book is the way it depicts enslaved people and formerly enslaved people as like these badass warriors who are fighting a corrupt system. And Morrison writes about how often enslaved people are presented to be pitied without being understood. And to me, it felt like Coates understands that too and is working against that in this book. All right. I'm definitely glad that I read Beloved first. And I really love his nonfiction. And every time he publishes an article, I'm so excited to read (laughs) it. So I'm excited about that one. Yeah. And I did part of it on audio and I really enjoyed the narration too. Oh, that's good to know. All right, Chelsea, what's your first pairing? My first pairing is Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. I love her writing so much. Me too. Sing Unburied Sing. This was, I mean, she has some other novels, but I don't know, would you call this like a breakout for her? Yeah, so Salvage the Bones and Sing Unburied Sing, they both won the National Book Award, but I do think that this one seemed to get more widespread attention and it was a book of the month pick oh yeah that's probably a large part of why but sing unburied sing is described by the publisher as an archetypal novel inspired by faulkner and morrison this is a journey it is a tale of complicated motherhood very much like beloved of ghosts and the ugly underbelly of America. And as I read Beloved, specifically the scenes where Paul D. remembers this period of imprisonment really made me think of Sing Unburied Sing and its depiction of Parchman Prison, the Mississippi State Penitentiary. Main characters in this book include Jojo and his sister Kayla, who live with their grandparents, and their mother Lenny, who has a drug problem. 
She's in and out of their lives, and she has visions of her dead brother when she's high. But there is another supernatural ghostly element that just pairs really well with Beloved. Plus, this book is structured, like that braiding that I talked about where Morrison is braiding all of these storylines past and present together, where Jasmine Ward does sort of the same thing, threading memory and sort of flashbacks and different characters' perspectives together with vivid imagery, lyrical writing. It just echoes Morrison's work so well, and yet Ward's voice is distinct. She's not mimicking in any way. And the alternating perspectives just tie in so well with Beloved. I truly believe that someday, and I think she's well on her way to this, Ward is going to be held in the high esteem that Morrison is. And this book does deal a little bit more with manhood, whereas Beloved really focuses on womanhood and motherhood. But we do see questions of motherhood and responsibility and some really similar themes and commentary on gender and trauma in Sing Unburied Sing and Beloved. All right, what is your next pairing? Red at the Bone by Jacqueline Woodson. And in doing some research for this podcast, I I stumbled across something that I hadn't known before, which was that one of the questions that Morrison was wrestling with in Beloved was whether motherhood could be considered a kind of freedom and that she was writing in a time where the freedom to choose not to be a mother was very important to the women's movement. And it's not that she disagreed with that, but that she was questioning, like, can motherhood be its own kind of freedom? And you see that in Beloved with the questions of a mother's love and whether that love is too too big. So this book, Red at the Bone, I think connects well with that question. So the book starts on one of the primary characters, Melody's 16th birthday. And at the beginning of the book, she's descending the stairs of her grandparents' house and she's wearing this dress that was supposed to be worn by her mother 16 years earlier on her 16th birthday but was never worn by her mother and has been retailored to fit Melody. And as she walks down these stairs, she sees the faces of her family members. And from there, we move in and out of each individual's perspective and back and forth through time. We learn in terms of plot about how this family came together. And that was through, this is Jacket Copy, the unplanned pregnancy of a teenage couple who were from two very different social classes. So it caused a lot of strife for their parents for many reasons. And we also learn as we're weaving in and out of their minds about the different ways that each of these family members have hurt each other and have loved one another. This is a great pairing for Beloved, I think, because of its structure. It's also nonlinear and also weaves in and out of different perspectives, although it's certainly a bit easier to follow than Beloved. The writing, as you mentioned with Ward, is very much its own, but it, similar to Morrison, it's striking and it's poetic and it makes you want to stop and take in sentences multiple times. You just want to bask in the beauty of, of Woodson's language. We've mentioned her before. She's a poet and she just writes such lovely language. Thematically, I like that this book is about motherhood. 
but might answer the question about freedom and motherhood a little differently than beloved. And it, like you mentioned with Sing Unburied Sing, it expands on that theme and depicts fatherhood in a really interesting way, as well as what it could look like to be a grandparent raising a grandchild and what that kind of parenting might look like. It's a really loving depiction of this family while the family still remains complicated. I really liked that one on audio. And as you're talking about grandparents, we didn't even talk about the character uh, Grandma Baby, Baby Suggs. Um, But she plays a significant role in Beloved and Raising Denver. And so that's a really great tie-in. Yeah, we didn't talk about Baby. I, I cry every time I read the part about how she got her name. Mm-hmm. <sighs> okay. <laughs> what is your next pairing? Uh, my next pairing is Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker Rhodes. And I like this pairing because it ties in the Jim Crow and then civil rights era and present day. And I think that seeing how the racist structures that were set up by the institution of slavery as depicted in Beloved still remain today is just uh, really important. And I would hate for any reader to pick up Beloved and say this is a novel about the past because it is very much resonant to this day. This book, Ghost Boys, is also, it's been especially on my mind this week because as we record this, details of the murder of Ahmaud Arbery have been made public and I'm just reminded of how sinister whiteness is and how history echoes in such horrifying ways. So I think that this one pairs really well with Beloved for all of those reasons. Ghost Boys is about Jerome, who is 12 years old and was shot by a white cop because he had a toy gun. And Jerome becomes a ghost and witnesses sort of the aftermath of his death in his community. He is joined by another ghost boy, Emmett Till, who helps Jerome process what happened to him from a historical perspective. And this is a middle grade novel. It is incredibly layered, and I think it is so well worth reading for adults. And I, I think that this is a book that parents should read with their kids alongside any history curriculum. I mean, this is a book I would love to see taught, but barring that, I think that this makes for a really great family read and discussion. The ghost element here is what first came up for me as I was thinking about the pairings, this tradition of the supernatural, the importance of ancestry in African-American literature and culture. It's so well depicted in this book, and I listened to it on audio, which was a really powerful experience. So that is Ghost Boys by Jewel Parker Rhodes. I think I'm going to have to read this one this month for sure. It's really good, and it's middle grade, so it is a short listen or a short read, but really powerful. The Ghost Boys really made me emotional. <laughs> um, I'm just warning you that you'll cry, but it, that's like that's a, a good thing. All right, my final pairing, although I just want to keep talking with you about books that <laughs> remind us of Beloved, is The Mothers by Britt Bennett. 
And I actually just finished, I was very, very lucky to get an e-galley, an early copy of Britt Bennett's newest book, The Vanishing Half. And as I was reading that, I was like, I need to reread The Mothers because I was just reminded of how wonderful of a writer she is. And after rereading and talking about Beloved with You, I think it and The Mothers pair so so nicely together. So I'm going to keep my plot summary super simple because I don't want to give much away. I love that the jacket of this book doesn't give much away at all, and I want to honor that. So the book is about Nadia Turner. When the book begins, she's 17 years old, and she has recently lost her mother. She's utterly grief-stricken, but is really trying to be strong and kind of push past some of that grief and push it aside. And she begins in in this state a casual but secret relationship with the pastor's son, Luke. And the rest of the book is about the fallout of both that secret and Nadia's own grief. The title of the book refers to the church mothers who primarily tell the story. So the book is told through the collective we and the mother's involvement in and commentary on Luke and Nadia's relationship is really important to the relationship and to the story Bennett is telling. And I think that is the element that connects well with Beloved. Of course, grief, motherhood, trauma, all of that is is in here as well. But the idea that the support of or abandonment of a community can make or break a person is really interesting. So like whether the community gets behind you or whether they leave you in your own struggles and how that can impact a person, I think is a really unique question for a novel to ask. And I think both Beloved and The Mothers deal with that. All right, Chelsea, what is your final pairing for today? Conjure Women by Afia Atakara. And I'm currently reading this one. I wouldn't always (laughs) recommend a book that I've just started and haven't read all the way through, but I feel confident recommending it. I've read some glowing Own Voices reviews, and the premise just sounds so perfect to pair with Beloved. So I am just going to read the publisher's caption just because I think that it says it all about why this is the perfect pairing. So Conjure Women is a sweeping story that brings the world of the South before and after the Civil War vividly to life. Spanning eras and generations, it tells of the lives of three unforgettable women. Miss May Bell, a wise healing woman, her precious and observant daughter Rue, who is reluctant to follow in her mother's footsteps as a midwife, and their master's daughter, Verena. The secrets and bonds among these women and their community come to a head at the beginning of a war and at the birth of an accursed child who sets the townspeople alight with fear and spreading superstition that threatens their newly won tenuous freedom. I mean, that just my eyes just got so big. like beloved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Magnificently written, brilliantly researched, richly imagined, Conjure Women moves back and forth in time to tell the haunting story of these women, their passions and friendships, and the links they will go to save themselves and those they love. It sounds well, so sounds good. <laughs> so good. And the cover's beautiful. I just have to I was to going mention. to say. 
<laughs> I was going to say one thing I know about this book is the cover is stunning. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to read this directly on the heels of Beloved. I think that will be a great experience. I might have to join you. I'll be curious to hear your thoughts. All right, Chelsea, before we wrap up, let's quickly share our picks of the week. I think we have some good ones here, some non-book media that you can consume to enhance your reading of Beloved. Yeah, um, I meant to watch this before our episode, but I think it's maybe going to be well-timed that I'll watch it right after. But um, the Toni Morrison documentary, The Pieces I Am, is on Hulu streaming, or you can rent it from Amazon for, I think it's only like 99 cents right now. I really want to watch that. My pick of the week is The 1619 Project. And as we're recording, Nicole Hannah-Jones just won the Pulitzer for commentary for her essay that appeared as part of this project. And she was kind of the spearhead of it. I'm just going to read the way the Pulitzer Committee described this. And she won for a sweeping, deeply reported and personal essay for the groundbreaking 1619 Project, which seeks to place the enslavement of Africans at the center of America's story, prompting public conversation about the nation's founding and evolution. And... I haven't read every essay in this project. It's ongoing, which is so cool. We'll put a link to it in our show notes. But in addition to personal essays, this project includes essays about the way the legacy of slavery in America impacts the healthcare system, the prison system, traffic patterns. It talks about white appropriation of black culture and music. There are also poetry and photo essays, and it's just magnificent and challenging in the best way. Well, if you would like some more classic lit enthusiasm and podcast news, you can follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod and Twitter at Novel Pairings. We would love to know whether you pick up Beloved or any of the pairings that we mentioned today. So feel free to tag us and go ahead and tell your friends about Novel Pairings Podcast by writing a review for us on Apple Podcasts or better yet, sharing our most recent episode on social media. We declare after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything than of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith.